0: Hey folks, this week we're dropping the third and final episode of our three part feed swap with Afterlives with Kara Cooney. This week's episode is Demystifying Academia Part 3. If you missed part 1 or part 2, you can find them on our feed or you can find them on Kara's feed. If you are interested in a feed swap, please let us know via social media or email us at the Ozamandias Project Podcast at gmail.com. If you like our content, please also consider leaving us a review on iTunes or subscribing to our Patreon at The
1: Ozymandias Project. Thanks and enjoy the following episode. Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. Howdy, everyone.
0: I'm Jordan and Kara. Mrs.
1: Afterlives with Kara Cooney. That's me. That is you. But it's Afterlives with Kara Cooney and Jordan Gelsinski.
0: <laughs> but Gelsinski's a little along for the title, I think. Yeah, It's okay. Kara Cooney has a nice
1: it's, snap it's to something. it. It's something. It's something. My mother did it on purpose, apparently. It, it
0: works. So we're doing part three today.
1: Of demystifying yeah. academia and how things work. Unplanned yes. part
0: three. but Yeah hopefully everyone's enjoying our it's our work it's our, our shop talk yeah.
1: it's what we it's what we live so we can talk a lot about it not and about. it makes sense that we would have three parts
0: so, and so today we're going to be focusing on defending which a
1: the lot of programs not just defending
0: yeah but
1: <laughs> defending <laughs> the dissertation right um, Or that then we're in at ucla the proposal proposal yeah
0: um, graduating, and then you know what's beyond. So getting your PhD and beyond. So you know jobs, postdocs,
1: the academic job the market academic in general. All yeah. that Alt-TAC. kind of thing. We might have our own altac. We're going
0: Yeah, I think yeah. altac could be a whole episode. So okay. I think we might. Well, we can talk about it a bit, yeah. but I think it
1: deserves. Altac just means alternative from academic. Yeah. So that you get the PhD, but then when you go out on the job market, you do something different than uh, try to just be a professor at a a university yeah. or college
0: um we could even get into you know if you get a job in a in a at a university department politics your yeah. chair yeah you can share some of the. i can share some s- just well just like or like what's <laughs> so, what you know what does a chair do and all yeah. that kind of stuff yeah i um, yeah. for people who you know it's a lot of extra responsibilities and extra work on for you um, we can you know, endowed chairs we can talk all about yeah, but which is different
1: from being the chair. Yep. endowed chairs are different. much so. more fun to have an endowed chair, yeah,
0: and to sit on an endowed <laughs> chair
1: rather than to be the department chair. Yes. I have never had an an endowed chair, yeah
0: sometimes they rotate right they they, they, they do rotate yes. they work yes, okay. um so I think last episode we ended on funding. All the various funding opportunities you have while you're a PhD, and we talked about writing the actual dissertation, right? Um, and how long it took you, and right. how many pages. You know, you're writing. And we so decided we book. would do
1: a podcast on writing and how We're one writes do, and yes. how one writes academically. So that'll yeah. be fun. Yeah, yeah, especially for me. <laughs> So we'll be doing a podcast about writing with somebody who needs to write the dissertation I'm data and, gathering
0: right now and how
1: to hack that <laughs> how to how to make yourself how to put yourself into a system how to create a hockey rink that you can bounce off of so that you mm-hmm. get production done yep. this can be can be done
0: so in our in our trajectory we are now we're finished our dissertation uh-huh and so in some universities when you're done you have to you know you send it to your all your committee members your advisors they have to read through it give you feedback and comments you make those edits
1: and then in
0: most cases we have a dissertation defense
1: a defense that can be public can be semi-public can be private sometimes it's the choice of the person who's defending sometimes every university does a public defense and you don't really have a choice Mm -hmm. Um, most universities form the committee after the dissertation is written in and accepted by the advisor, yeah. and then a committee is formed, which means that you have a completed body of work that you then send out for critique to three oh. additional people, and then you have that public defense. And then they ask you questions mm-hmm. and say things like, I don't know, if you have another Egyptologist on your Egyptology. Defense, they might ask you something that's much more in the weeds, but defenses are also a way to make your work more public. So I had an economist on my mm-hmm. dissertation defense who asked me many economic questions, which was terrifying and scary. But, you know, it was just how does your data fit into this rubric? Yeah. And um, I've been on a, a dissertation defense in Norway where they flew me over and we ate salmon and drank a lot. <laughs> and it was very public and everyone wore fancy dress to this big public. Uh, auditorium and I was given a microphone and it was a, a, a very formal Socratic sort mm-hmm. of you must ask questions and, and challenge the person as much as possible. It was for Anders Betum and it was, um, it was great fun, but it was also uh, very performative. Mm-hmm. So most dissertation defenses I have found are performative. They're there to show for the professors and the advisors to show which students they really support. In other cases, and you and I have both heard of situations like this, it is to show which students they want to give a harder time to because they want to display that they're not fully supportive of student X, Y, or Z. Um, And in some cases though, it's more rare to let something go this far. You even hear of situations in which a defense is created and a committee is formed and the student has failed in a public venue, in a public venue. Um, I haven't heard about this happening for some 20 years. But people can get given a really hard time. Yes, they can. They'll still get passed
0: or something, yeah. but it can be a very traumatic. Defenses can be specifically
1: created to traumatize and to show power. And um, this, is, this is a human sort of thing. It's a human hierarchical sort of thing. It's, um, it's not necessarily a good thing, but it is, um, it is a display. It's a display in the same way, when I was telling Kylie and Mate, this wedding isn't for you, um, in many ways, the defense is not for you Mm -hmm. either. The defense is for your advisors and for your university to place you where they want to place you. And they are often the ones that choose your committee at a much more Ivy league type school in the United States. You don't really get to choose your committee. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it's, it's just a very, um, old school way of of doing things. Yeah. At some universities, you wear your full robes and regalia, your little hat and your yeah. all your stuff you would wear to graduation. Uh, most places don't do that anymore. Well, like to me, it always, I see it, but I also, I guess
0: you can make changes afterwards, like when you're writing your book mm-hmm. project or something mm-hmm. like this. But to me, it never made sense to have the critique after you're done. Like you should say all those things while the person's writing and editing so they can make those changes so that right. you maybe have problems with X, Y, or Z. Don't let it come to fruition, and then be like, "Oh, well, now I have an issue with all this stuff that I could have told you about while you were writing it." Yeah, you know. Yeah. So to me, it seems
1: it's in some ways it's it's the expectation that this will become a book, Mm -hmm. and so since this will become a book, we are giving you some opportunities to take on board for when you transform this into a book. But um, but I see your point. If you You had these people on your committee from the inception of the proposal, Mm -hmm. then you would be working in a more multidisciplinary way from the very beginning. So I totally agree with you. I
0: have a close friend where this happened to them where there was all this critique at the the defense. And they were like, why wasn't this brought up when I sent you like all my chapters and the edit, like you didn't bring this up then. Yeah. It's almost like you were saving it just to have something to say. Well, that's particularly if the
1: advisor is the one doing the critiquing Mm -hmm. and that's cruel Mm -hmm. because if the advisor is saving all of his or her critiques for the public moment, then there's obviously something wrong. The the system is broken and there's a toxic relationship involved. Something's happening. And we all know that this happens. They're showing their power and they're displaying to the, their academy, to their Mm -hmm. part of the academy, that this student does not have their full support. And trust me, that word spreads, right? Mm -hmm. Word spreads, people talk, um, people talk about how somebody reacted under that kind of Mm a a scrutiny and pressure. It's it's almost like a test. Did the person cry? I mean, it's, it's um, the dissertation defense can be, it can be a glorious moment of triumph Mm -hmm. in which everything goes perfectly right or it can be um it can can be very traumatic even if you pass Mm -hmm. it can be a traumatizing experience that people still continue to talk about and sometimes there are things built into a defense at some universities that seem to want to manufacture this kind of trauma for instance Mm -hmm. um, there are many universities that deal with ancient language that will give somebody a blind Site reading on on okay. site, which is more nerve wracking to the the um, the person undergoing the process, arguably than anything about their dissertation. Because by the time you get to a dissertation, you can talk about a Six Ways to Sunday, you up down X Y Z, you know it very well, and you you have to remind yourself that you know it better than the people who are talking about your work. And most of those people haven't really read the work as carefully as you would have wanted them to read it. Mm-hmm. But if you're given a text in ancient Greek, in ancient Egyptian, in Demotic, whatever. Yeah. And you are expected to take that text and in front of everyone who knows what the text is, they are not blindly, they're mm-hmm. not blind sight reading it, right? You, and you have to sight read in front of everybody. Then it's, um, it's yeah. a particular kind of uh, torture device that we in the academic world seem to reserve for, for ourselves. Yeah.
0: I remember even exams at Chicago, where it was blind
1: texts for like midterm
0: or finals. Yeah. And even knowing like the way the course was set up, it was that this can't lower your grade. It can only raise your grade, but just like, just having it, you know, you not knowing what it was going to be and just all this built up stress and then It's such a mind. It's like, has nothing to do with whether or not you know. She
1: wanted to say a mind fuck, but then she stopped herself. So I'll say it. Go on.
0: But like, it it had nothing to do with like how well you knew Egyptian or not. It was like how well you can control your own
1: mind. It's like, I found that in those kinds of settings where there's text reading in that, in that kind of a performative display context, Mm -hmm. that Students are so nervous about text classes, about when they're reading Egyptian or Greek or whatever, Akkadian, in front of their professor in their seminar. So they have to know what text they're reading. They have to prepare enough lines. They have to make sure they have everything ready. If they end up sight reading in that particular class, they're just dying because the professor is ready to pounce. And it's this weird, and we talked about this a bit last time, this idea that, that philology in particular is known for harassment and bullying of graduate Mm -hmm. students in a very formalized, very public, very polite kind of fashion, but which is why at UCLA, I make sure that we have a text reading class where no one knows what we're going to have in a given day, and we're just sight reading all the time. And people are like, I don't know what that is. What is that? And you're not expected to know it or be perfect. We're all just kind of figuring things out together. And I make sure that I show up for that class sight reading myself, not Mm -hmm. having prepared anything, because if I have prepared, then I am exposed. I am creating the lie that there is this perfection that can be reached that freaks students out more than anything.
0: It's intimidating. And it's, it's better when we're all on the same page. Oh, we all haven't prepped. We're all just going to go in and kind of sight read together and help each other. Except for the
1: one person who's bringing the text in. And yeah. there are, there are a magician um, who can help us figure out what's going on, but, but
0: yeah. you take turns. So then it's yeah. kind of more equal. Yeah.
1: But imagine you go into your defense and, you know, it's in the seminar room that you've been meeting in for graduate seminars for years. An and auditorium we're,
0: even. Or even you know. an
1: auditorium. And somebody hands you a text and you're, this is even before you're, you're meant to answer all of the questions mm-hmm. that are asked. And it's just, it's a very high stress yeah. environment. And um, the, the more that I look at it, the more I think it's meant to be. And um, mm-hmm. the, I think it's some, the, these are things that, that And it's need one to of those, well,
0: like I went through it and got through it. So yeah. like everyone
1: else should too. It is hazing. And it is just a formalized yeah. method of hazing. And, and some people be like, well, yeah, but you have to go through this to show that you can do it. And that you are a a master of your field and all of these things, but um, I think there are other ways of doing this. And the fact that it's so performative and that people are so rarely failed, it's more of an arena Mm -hmm. to display power. Um, And, and, and this is super important and we haven't even mentioned this yet, but a student soon to be a professor or, or soon to be a PhD, may be sitting in that arena amongst competitors who hate each other, who are using the student as a pawn to take each other down. Mm-hmm. And so you may have a committee that's formed maybe against the advisor's will, or these are just the people that are on the committee that year, but you may have a committee with people on there who don't get along with each other. Yeah. And so you might, or you might have somebody who's not on a committee, but is in a public defense, is they're able to ask questions yeah, because that's, people can yeah, show you up. can. So you may have another professor show up and try to sabotage this the student in order to sabotage Mm -hmm. their competitor end up being Um, the punching
0: bag yeah they're trying to get to your advisor or something like this and you would
1: think that these professors would be much too advanced and (laughs) and mature to not engage in things like this but people are people and to create these kinds of circumstances they can easily be abused easily be abused so if you have a defense coming up and you're worried about these kinds of things, then I would try to take as much control of this situation as you can. Um, If you don't want to have a public defense, don't have a public defense. If you have a choice and you don't need to do that, then don't do that. A lot of people want the public defense because they can invite friends Friends and supporters and family to be there, and that's something that they want. Mm -hmm. I didn't want People in, in my defense, Hopkins didn't have, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore didn't have a tradition of having public defenses. So, me saying, no, I don't want that wasn't like, oh, Kara, you need Crazy. to be doing this yeah. because there are expectations and such. So, I just, um, it was a small group and I madly took notes and, and tried to use it yeah. as a workshop for publication yeah. of the book.
0: Yeah. I think that's the positive way of yeah. using it. Yeah. 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 But which is why at UCLA we don't have defenses at the
1: end. No, we do them early. If there's a defense at the end, then something's either something's gone wrong mm-hmm. or it's a situation in which a student has been out of the field for 20 years doing whatever job they're doing and then has finally finished the PhD and is okay. able to come back. So you need to kind of re-touch base. And with so everyone. the whole committee comes back in a more formal defense. And then it's in many cases, the defense of the dissertation proposal happens at the same time that mm-hmm. the dissertation itself is defended. That can happen. Um, I've seen it, but it's... Um, Those are for students that have, you know, been writing for 20 years or something, which is unusual. unusual. So we don't do a defense, but the student does have to get four or five committee members to sign off Mm -hmm. on the dissertation, which involves emails and phone calls and communications and lunches and coffees, trying to figure out what. The person wants in the dissertation that they're not seeing. Getting all your edits, making all the revisions, and, and it means sending... you have four or five people reading yeah. it. Getting yeah, as opposed to just one or yeah. two, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, because the more people that can read your dissertation before the better. it's done, well, yeah, and then the better. you
0: You know, you always have maybe a comment where one person says one thing over here and then another person's over here and you're like, okay, how do I make both of the people happy?
1: And you can't, but then figure out a, but that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to have diametrically opposed opinions with you in the middle, with a committee that's been formed long ago to put those, those Mm -hmm. opinions in as equally valid, because what it does is it empowers the dissertation writer
0: to be the stronger, to to, to
1: decide I'm going to go kind of with that. I don't like this, or I don't like either of what you were saying. I'm going to do something a little bit mm-hmm. in the middle, but it also empowers the dissertation writer to realize they don't have to become a mini me of one advisor that they, when they're writing for a committee, the whole way through, they have to write something for a broader audience mm-hmm. the whole way through. Yeah. And that's very, very useful. And if you disagree with one of the
0: comments, you know, Sam, you know, stand firm and substantiate why
1: you think it's this or which you can't do when it's just one advisor that's asking Mm -hmm. you to change something, at least not very easily. And how many stories have we heard of where the people like I had to change this thing that I didn't agree with, but if I didn't change it, there was going to be no PhD Mm -hmm. for me. And there are systems that grant professors tremendous power over their PhD students. That um, can be highly problematic, and the more you diffuse that power, the more you decentralize that power with the committee system, the more empowered the Mm -hmm. dissertation writer is. So that that's my preferred system, and that's um, what we do at UCLA. It's what we do at Berkeley. We're not doing it that way because I want it to be that way. I just happen to be lucky enough to work in a system that works for me. Mm -hmm. And who knows, with chicken or the egg, maybe I like working in the system because it's the only system that. That I've been, been an advisor in. So it, it could be that. But I've um, served on other committees that have the
0: yeah. other system. So well, and you yeah, went then the I other come system. in late,
1: but then I come yeah, in late. True. And I know having come in late and being a committee member in those other systems that I don't have as much power. I can mm-hmm. say things, you're but just, the advisor, the advisor. Yeah. could then in a private conversation say, Don't worry about that. Mm-hmm. It's fine. And then what I have yeah. to say isn't that important. Yeah.
0: So. You can't like hold things up. Mm-mm. You're not the Mm-mm. advisor. No okay so we covered so you write your write your phd you go through editing you go through defense yeah past you're a doctor you are a doctor now yeah and you go through all the
1: convocations. you ceremonies. have a party in my house yeah a i'll bouncy get you house. a bouncy castle in the backyard
0: Yeah,
1: um, that's really fun we didn't get to do that through no. covid which is sad and the last phd party we had here had no bouncy house castle bouncy castle bouncy house but um Inshallah, we will do this in future. Yeah,
0: next, so, next yeah. people. Yeah. Um, so then what's, what's people's options? Once they're a full doctor, they can start applying to jobs. Yeah. We can, we'll talk about that. And yeah. then there's also the postdocs. Yeah. So maybe we should do postdocs first.
1: Yeah. I, I was able to move out into the academy as a full working member with a one year gig at UCLA teaching mm-hmm. as a visiting lecturer. And then I moved into a three-year teaching postdoc at Stanford after that, which was great because it gave me four years of kind of a safety to get publication plans together to to work on curatorial projects Mm -hmm. and things like that. The problem is that many of those teaching postdocs have been axed in favor of more adjunct teaching. um, So maybe explain what adjuncting is and why we all hate (laughs) Yeah. So adjuncting is essentially the contract work of the academic world. And Mm -hmm. it means that instead of hiring somebody as tenure track or full-time, depending on what your university does, with all of the benefits for retirement and Mm -hmm. health and, and dental and all of these things that you would have to provide, um, childcare time off, um, sick leave, all of these things you say, okay, we're not going to worry about that. We're going to have some of those full-time faculty, but most of our faculty, we're going to teach by course. So you set up a contract in which somebody comes in and they teach a course for anywhere from 2000 to $10,000 per course.
0: Yeah. And, but it's also, I think to reiterate what you said, it's contractual. So it's, it's for a year. So you might move somewhere or for
1: a quarter it or could for be 10 literally weeks. for
0: like, where if you get a tenure track job mm-hmm. or a professorship or something, mm-hmm. it's
1: for ever. If you get tenure, it can be until you retire. Yes. Yeah. If you um, are pre-tenure track and you move around a little bit, okay, then those jobs aren't forever, but you're still getting benefits. You're able to move your retirement with you. It's but a, if you're, yeah. yeah, if you're adjunct teaching, then you're teaching course by course. Mm-hmm. And so say you get paid by somebody to teach for a quarter for $5,000 to adjunct. And so there's $5,000. You can't make it through the 10 weeks or whatever for $5,000. So you should have another course, right? So maybe you get another course, um, at another university and you, that one pays less and it's $3,500. So you put those two together and you try to live very cheaply, but adjunct teaching, you're not in a union. Mm-hmm. You are not, um, protected in any way. You can be fired with cause and, um, the pay is usually the awful. pay is awful. The benefits are non-existent, and there are all kinds of stories. Like if you wanted to Google for fun and go down this rabbit hole, you could Google adjunct uh professors or PhDs on food stamps or something mm-hmm. like that and get an idea of what adjunct teaching does to people. And, and and you know what my opinion of adjunct teaching is. What what do I tell you guys? Like, don't do it for more than don't do it if you have don't offer do more than a hot
0: second. But don't do it unless. Like it's like very short term. Well, why don't you have to adjunct? Because we have BTA ships. You have TA ships. And we get paid more. I remember a local uh, university was looking for an adjunct. Yeah. um, And they were taking- And that local
1: university will not be named.
0: (laughs) not be named. (laughs) Yeah. But they were were taking, you know, PhD students to even teach this course. And they were paying less than we make as a TA for- a you know ten week twelve week because semester so it was like fifteen weeks actually yeah and I was like because no, I can't do record. Both. yeah and it was like forty students yeah. and I was like it's a lot of grading a lot of papers yeah you know
1: so in, yeah it was so in Jordan's case it. and in any situation where a grad student already has the opportunity to teach. I would look then, and if you're only TAing, you're only yeah. teach assisting, yep. not teaching as instructor of record, mm-hmm. then I would advise you to look for when and where you can be instructor of record. And then what do you do there? Well, so
0: I, don't, I think we didn't talk about this as part of like a funding option, but at UCLA, we have the opportunity to be te- instructor of record in the summer. Right. So over the summer, we can apply to teach our own course. And prep it, write it yourself, make make it exactly the way
1: you want it to be, and teach the course the way you want it to be. It's a course we already have on our book. So if you taught, say, the magic and medicine class that Kate Mm Bonish normally teaches throughout the year, then you would create your own version of that. Having sat in as a TA, you're not going to recreate all of the slides, because no one has time for that. But you're going to put your own self and your own perspective into that Mm -hmm. course, and then you put on your CV, instructor of record. And by the time you're done with your six to eight years at UCLA, you will have been instructor of record, what, maybe six times or Mm -hmm. something like that, Um, maybe max six, but you're still instructor of record throughout. So you don't need that experience. When people adjunct and they kind of need it, it's because their their institution, and a lot of Ivy's are like this, a lot of Mm -hmm. Ivy League institutions are like this, their institution does not give them opportunities to teach whether as instructor of record or as a TA. Yeah. So when you're applying for jobs and like, tell us about your teaching philosophy. You're like, I ain't got no goddamn mm-hmm. teaching philosophy because I have no idea. I haven't thought. I have you know, mm-hmm. I haven't, I haven't been in the trenches. I have been only the, the, the receiver student. of this. I haven't yeah. been out there. So if you're coming from one of those places and those places, you know, they pay better than UCLA. They're generally a faster PhD than UCLA because you can put all of your time mm-hmm. into it. So there's a lot of benefits to, to getting your PhD at a place like that versus at a, at a public institution like UCLA, but then you might have to adjunct for a year or two Mm -hmm. and put together, you know, that you've taught at, at this state institution and you've taught at that public institution, but put together some kind of adjuncting work so that you can then go out into the world and say, I have taught, this is how I've done it. These Mm -hmm. are the students that I've taught. These are my diversity perspectives. You know, how do you teach to students who are minority students or not, not traditionally, um represented in the academy, mm-hmm. like um students of color, Latino, yeah. Black students, et cetera. How do you as a yeah. white person potentially d- teach these students? How do you, if you are a Latino or a black person, d- how do you work with these diversity issues? But those are the kinds of things that, that people are asking. Yeah. So that, I, I yeah. feel
0: like a lot of PhDs who don't have opportunities to teach within their university, maybe do like adjuncting their last year or something mm-hmm, while they're mm-hmm. finishing up writing they can adjunct at a local like liberal arts colleges are really good for adjuncting community colleges are great for it too to get well i got experience. super lucky
1: because ann macy roth was taking a sabbatical from Howard university Mm -hmm. and they needed, and it wasn't even an adjuncting situation. It was more like a visiting instructor. Right. So I came in for one year to teach four classes, one semester, four classes, the next semester. And, and I got a trial by fire, a whole lot of teaching experience, creating my own courses, Mm -hmm. um, from scratch, uh, for the first time and figuring out how to fill an hour and 20 minutes of time yeah. how to uh, do all the grading summer is hard. yeah it's hard it's,
0: it's two three hours yeah and you're like how do I it's such a you know the first week is so difficult of like teaching for three hours obviously with breaks and yeah. activities yeah and summer stuff, teaching I put
1: all of it into a six week time period so it's condensed two three hour
0: classes it's and it's, that's a lot to talk about it I did art lot. and it was like I'm gonna how do you talk about Egyptian art for three hours and not, <laughs> you know, keep
1: the students- Not lose your mind. Engaged and, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So it, it's, yeah, difficult. Well, I, okay, so within our department, we've had, um, you know, PhDs come in who are like, I guess, visiting where they mm-hmm. have like a one or two year type of contract. Mm-hmm. Does that fall under adjunct or is that a different type of category? Well, like who, give me- well, Like when um, Dr. Tarche was here or like Jonathan- right. Well,
1: no, because at UCLA, we have, benefits. we have, we don't use adjuncts at UCLA very much at all. Yeah. And when we do, I can't, as a department chair, it's hard for me to afford paying for that okay. class. So what we do instead is we have a category of instructor called a lecture. Yeah. And then the lecturer it gets benefits and, um, and all kinds of leave and time off and insurance and other things, but they have to teach, I think at least three courses at UCLA. Mm-hmm. So when we had Julia Troche and then Jonathan Winterman, when he was lecturer, Marissa Stevens was mm-hmm. lecturer for a while, they're always teaching, a, um, I think, five to six courses. And so that's a, you know, it's not a full-time job. They're teaching around 80%, 70 to 80%, yeah. but they get all of the benefits and other things. And, better so,
0: than adjuncting. and
1: they're unionized yeah. and it's not adjuncting. And if you can get a position like that, that's great because mm-hmm. you're able to sit in a in a holding pattern after your PhD, where you're getting all of this teaching experience, hopefully publishing articles and and other things. In addition, yeah. working on your book, mm-hmm. and that's an ideal place to be when you finish that PhD, so that you can build up the CV before the big the big attack for the tenure track jobs. Yep. Yeah. Um,
0: okay, so we did kind of adjunct and all that postdocs.
1: Oh yeah. So so the postdoc thing is a problem. Yeah.
0: So there are and I think it's different in the states versus
1: Europe. Yes. I find
0: postdocs in Europe are much more
1: common? They're state supported yeah. and there's a system in which they understand that juniors, junior academics need to have employment. And so there's more interest in creating opportunities mm, okay. that are two or three year postdocs that are at different universities or that you can apply for and then take to a university of your choice. Mm -hmm. Like I have a Marie Curie Mm -hmm. postdoc coming to UCLA this, um, October and, and that's great. So she, she was in Italy. Now she's going to be with us for the second half. So she's got the kind of
0: funding source and then she can go to work with whoever like works with her project.
1: And here there are such federal, state yeah. postdocs, but they're very rare. I mean, like yeah. you could apply for an NSF, NEH type thing, but those are th- those kinds of things are tough. What people generally do is they'll apply to the Michigan Society of Fellows, the Harvard Society of Fellows, Princeton, whatever, Stanford Humanities Center, mm-hmm. UC Irvine Humanities Center. Those are great, but for each position that they have, each postdoc, mm-hmm. probably 500 PhDs, recently finished PhDs in the humanities mm-hmm. will apply. And it becomes a battle royale. So most of
0: those are internally funded by the university.
1: They're funded by the university or they're funded by endowments. Endowments. So there could be some rich donor that's come in and established an endowment that pays out a certain amount per year or an endowment set up with a center, like a humanities center at a particular university. And then you have people come in for one year, maybe two, sometimes three. Mm -hmm. The more prestigious ones are three to four years.
0: So the UC has like it's presidential president's postdoc yeah, is that's um, a big popular one right
1: and this is what dr solange ashby just mm-hmm. won and the president's postdoc is one year a second year renewable mm-hmm. option and it's anywhere within the ucs when you have a mentor or sponsor but you can also take it to other places so mm-hmm. i think penn state is now part of it um Oh, there's a whole list. I should remember the list, but I don't. You guys can look it up under that's President's cool. Postdoc. But it's it's diversity. So if you're a person of color, underrepresented within your field, um, a woman in a field that's underrepresented um, and mm. it's mostly masculinely driven, then you can, or non-binary person, yep. whatever, you can apply um, to be represented in, in the President's Postdoc. And then that one will, trying to change the whiteness of the academy will then pay for half of the first five years of that person's tenure track employment. So it becomes very attractive for universities to pick up those people and say, that's going to be our new scholar in Egyptology, yep. for instance, which is what we've just done at UCLA, because it's it's something, it's an FTE, a full-time employment position that we can get much more easily yep. than, than in another way.
0: I think maybe we should explain to just how job searches in departments go and how you know,
1: they're let really me,
0: expensive. Let and me do, yeah, to... that's important.
1: So let's do the job searches. But let me just state yeah, we can that, postdocs first. that postdocs, there used to be a whole lot of teaching postdocs because, because places like Stanford, which is where my teaching postdoc was, wanted to make sure they had the best ratio of PhDs to students mm-hmm. because that ratio goes into their US News World Report, mm-hmm. whatever, and puts them on the top 10 list and you know Stanford's always there fighting for the vying for one of the top four spots and so when they were going to make their undergraduates do a humanities requirement course they would make sure it was even TA'd I was like a glorified TA it was TA'd by a PhD so that their student their PhD to student ratio was insane right Stanford and many other places and these are the the you know self um funded private institutions Mm -hmm. have gotten rid of a lot of these humanities requirements and are like whatever you want to do students you it's fine you don't have to do this writing course you don't have to do this humanities course and Mm -hmm. students are just able to do whatever they want and so that program that I was a part of the introduction to humanities is now no more and and that happened in many different institutions right my so my friend her first year
0: post finishing she did one of those at Chicago where yeah. it was kind of like yeah. an intro to yeah. the humanities where she was teaching like what
1: happened to that one they got so, rid of it too. so so it's,
0: what was cool is that at Chicago they kind of you applied but it was very much I think not guaranteed but you know a pretty easy...
1: if you were a Chicago student if, a Chicago and you, student, applied. if yeah. you
0: applied it was like oh we'll give you another year or two to kind of settle yeah and it'd be applying for jobs and stuff so it gave her some wiggle room to then she now has a tenure track job and all this good stuff That's but great um it was like she was teaching like freud and yeah stuff. and she's like oh i taught Dostoevsky modern Dostoevsky like and, modern um, middle east yeah. studies she does like women's studies and stuff so she was like teaching like introduction to theory yeah you know just
1: like basic i was in a russian lit class i'm like what
0: am i doing here but, but it was about
1: death so I understood why I was yeah. there. It was all about death. I'm like, but I, I can do this.
0: There's something to be said for it because I think it's good yeah. that they have opportunities for like new, newly recent graduates to but know, in find this, some time. But apparently it's a dying Well, thing. in the
1: same way that when I was coming up, tenure track professors were probably 60% of the academy and then adjuncts were 40. It has now become where adjuncting is probably... 70 to 75%, maybe 80% of the instructors, universities around the nation, Mm -hmm. this is the way it is in the United States, and only 20 to 25% are tenure track faculty, which puts an enormous burden on people like me, in terms of doing the admin work, making Mm -hmm. sure that you're responsible to your students, um, who's going to chair the department, who's going to do all of the service, you know, all of these things are highly problematic. But in the same way that that has shifted as we have privatized and made our universities into capitalist machines. The same things happened to the postdoc, right? Yep. So the postdoc that used to support all of these newly minted PhDs to be in the trenches, to teach um, in those introductory GE classes, those have gone away. And much of the way the mechanism that they have used is to drop the requirement entirely. Yeah. In the same way that people are like, oh, you know, it's so hard to teach all these foreign languages and these foreign languages classes, they cost so much because you have to pay all these lecturers who are unionized. What if we just got rid of the one to two year language requirement for for a college degree and you just don't need that anymore. And so you get rid of that requirement and then boom, all of these people are expendable and you don't even need Mm -hmm. to hire them anymore or you don't need that postdoc. To have those PhDs come in and teach at a lower level that you cycle in and out. So that this privatization and capitalization of the academy is very keenly felt right now, particularly for the people who've just finished their PhDs Mm -hmm. or at their most vulnerable and they can't get a goddamn job.
0: I'm just like, you're saying that, and I'm just thinking about turnover Mm -hmm. and how that doesn't, if you're all just, you know, most of the department is adjuncts. Yeah. on like very sh- short-term contracts. Yeah. Things are being cycled through so quickly. There's no community being built. Yeah. There's no relationships. No. If
1: students- there's no loyalty to yeah, an institution or yeah, to a place. Exactly. A lot of adjuncts are teaching at three or four they different places. They can't care.
0: They're and they're being screwed
1: over yeah. by all three or four of them so they it's yeah. it's hard and what if you need a letter of rec and you're that's a student yeah. and all of your instructors or adjuncts who have no loyalty to this institution are like I don't have time for letters of rec in addition to all or that have I'm only doing taught you
0: once yeah and then
1: they're gone yeah um it's it's kind of like do you know what I'm going to compare it to I once got my legs lasered you know hair laser yes. removal <laughs> at a place called what the hell is it called did you get it off on? because uh, that's what I did Oh, I can't remember the name of pod? the company, and I had been going to this other place where I had a relationship with the woman mm-hmm. who was lasering my body of yeah. hair, and I knew her, and I was like, "Oh, hey, how are you?" And, and yeah. you know, I had this relationship. I went to this corporate place, and I realized that I saw a different person every single time I went there, and. I was like, oh my god! This corporation has done this on purpose so that I can't build up a relationship with this person, so that they can't move to another salon and steal me because stealing clients Mm -hmm. is a big deal Mm -hmm. in this world. So they make sure that they and and I asked. I was like, because you'll follow. Yes, you'll follow somebody. Hair hair laser removal can be painful. You want to go with the person who knows what they're doing, who does a better job, who knows the equipment better. Some of them are like they don't know how to do it, and so I stopped going to this place because I'm like, yes, they burn you. Oh my Mm -hmm. god. So anyway. Uh, when you find a good person, if they say, I'm moving to this other place, you're like, where are you going? I will follow you. And I was anthropologically quizzing Mm -hmm. the people who work there. And I'm like, oh, how does it work? How do I get to see you again? She's like, I don't know from a given day where, which location of this company I am going to be working at. Mm -hmm. So they tell me that morning, I check into the app and then I go to this other place. So they're always keeping them on their toes so that nobody knows where they're going to be. They can't build up client relationships yeah. and they can't steal their yeah. clients it's brilliantly done um if i remember the name of the company i will i will let you know but um yeah 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 I mean, but that's what adjuncting yeah. does it it puts everyone on the defensive and it disempowers it's purely them about money it's purely about money and we're using not, their yeah. time and effort and i i swear everyone who adjuncts it would be a beautiful thing if in the united states everyone just decided we're not going to fucking do it anymore we're not just well, a whole, like all the adjuncts just go on strike, like all league up with each other and just say, no, we're not, we're not doing it anymore. Mm-hmm. And see what happens to the university system. That is about the client is always right. Or the student in this oh, case is always right. Who's paying learning. tuition, trying to get all of the students to take out more loans so that mm-hmm. their university can, can get ahead. I mean, it would be a beautiful thing for that football program. Yeah. For the goddamn football program. Oh my God. Well,
0: I think we could talk. We've all seen those, you know, job ads we've all seen those job ads that are just ridiculous adjunct, like, yeah. you know, you're teaching four fours and you have all these responsibilities and you're getting paid, like no money. And then they post, oh. those are
1: usually visiting ads. So there's a difference between adjuncting okay. and being like a visiting short-term professor. Okay. There's they're both contracts. Yeah. One's a contract for one class. Another could be a contract for like one year. Mm-hmm. So then you have a contract to do work for one year and they'll say, yeah, we want you to teach four, four. We want you to advise our students. We want you to write letters. And then they'll throw in some admin, something or other. And you're like, I'm and sorry, what? Like nothing. And pay you nothing. Yeah. And pay you. nothing." And then still 2000 people apply for it because
0: it's the only job that came up.
1: And the biggest thing to remember here, and this is super important is I don't care who's gotten in your head. I don't care what you've read lately that tells you that a PhD in the humanities is without value because it's wrong. It's not true. The problem is, is that if you go to the person or the people or the institutions that granted you the PhD in the humanities, expecting them to give you something different, yeah. that is where you will fail. Instead, you need to take the PhD in the humanities and go out into the private sector and build something with it that you maybe didn't expect that's not teaching exactly you know the chaucer poetry that that you were used to doing but actually makes you have to go out and do something a little bit different so if you're able to do that yeah then you will succeed yeah you think about your skill
0: sets what skill sets you have not like oh i need to find something that does new kingdom egyptology that's not going to happen no it's a toxic. this has become
1: a toxic patronage system in which the people that they invite you and they say, oh, you're passionate about this thing, come to us. And you get your PhD. Left time. And then as if in a toxic marriage, they're like, oh, but you're only capable of doing these. And they've already set it up with things like the hazing in class and mm-hmm. the defense that makes you feel like a lesser person that disempowers you and makes you feel stupid inside. Mm-hmm. Then you feel like I have to stay in this marriage. I can't go anywhere else. I am only good enough for this small kind of teaching. Yeah. And then you're done. You're, you're, you're a mark, you're a rube, you're perfectly set up mm-hmm. to only be able to make your 25K as an adjunct teacher okay. for the rest of time, rather than taking that PhD out into the private sector, understanding that you got it because you're able to do complex research subjects based on incomplete data and take that out mm-hmm. and, and do something else oh. with it.
0: So many applicable skills that you learn, yeah. but you have to make them- you know, palatable for other job sectors and yeah. all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But that's our alt-act episode.
1: It is. And how interesting is it that some of the professors that give these PhDs are the ones that make you feel you can only work mm-hmm. in this narrow area. And even within this narrow area, you're failing. And once you're psychologically set up for that mm-hmm. kind of disempowerment, then you you'll be their their cheap employee for forever that and I think just I know
0: within academia we have a lot of you know people who got their PhDs a while ago and they got tenure a while ago and things have changed so much where it was like oh yeah I just I just got a job after I was done at the same university that I got my PhD from they're like oh we'll just give you a job and I've been here ever since for 50 years and
1: that's I mean not make no mistakes. <laughs> there now. are in the same way that they say, you know, unemployment is the lowest levels, but there's so many jobs that need to be filled. Sure, there's a lot of jobs that need to be filled, but they're shit. Yeah. And people are now deciding I'm not gonna do that shit job anymore. So there's a ton of adjunct positions. People are looking for adjuncts all over the place, but people aren't interested and willing to make that that bargain. Yeah. Um, so just
0: touching back on postdocs. Yes, how can they be helpful to someone's career like Um, why is it usually a good idea to perhaps
1: most postdocs teaching postdocs or research postdocs are at very prestigious places that you would not otherwise get a job at right out of school Mm -hmm. so you are one of many people teaching at stanford or nyu or upenn or harvard and those places gather you together into that postdoc community mm-hmm. where you see what other people in the humanities are working on. You become part of a larger humanities cohort, mm-hmm. which is really nice. Yeah. So, so there, there's every reason in the world to take these postdocs. But now some of these postdocs are so prestigious and so hard to get that it's like winning the lottery. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, and you know what I tell you guys. I'm like, you can apply. Apply to the postdoc. But only do it within the cycle of applications that you're already doing. Don't put all of your yeah. any any extra weight or stock into it because you're probably not going to get it. Mm-hmm. But apply, and then you see what see what comes. What falls. Up. Yeah. Is that tequila with limes? What's happening? Are we shots. Remy's setting up shots. <laughs> You're asking about postdocs yeah, that are- like I'm thinking what Nadia has. Nadia has something through the Swiss, gover- Swiss mm-hmm. government. And it's, uh, because it's government organized, two professors have apply- who work in Switzerland mm-hmm. have applied for this money. I think it's in partnership with Tel Aviv University, yeah. but that's, that's a government grant. Mm-hmm. And so then the professors apply for it, say we need a postdoc to fund it, and you can get that postdoc. In the United States- that, that actually can happen too. Yeah. Like Elaine Sullivan mm-hmm. worked with Vilika Ventrich on her Karnak architectural project, oh. right? The D- digi- digital Karnak, And she had, I think, a two-year postdoc mm-hmm. out of that. And, and she was meant to come in and do a certain amount of work yeah. um, putting that website together. It's true. So, so a lot of postdocs that aren't like the big prestigious ones, like the Society of Fellows type things, or the teaching ones that are now largely defunct, mm-hmm you have to know who's doing what and you have to know which people are working on which projects and 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 how to apply for those things it's true a lot of it is insider baseball Mm -hmm. yeah
0: so they might already have an idea of who Mm -hmm. they maybe want who has
1: exactly the skill sets that they want because maybe they've trained them Mm -hmm. or worked with them in an excavation and they might write that job posting specifically for for that person yeah yeah Yeah.
0: okay so i feel like we've covered postdocs yeah so speaking on jobs, <laughs> what's the process?
1: I mean, well, I've just said that we're, we're now out at 20 to 25% tenure track jobs, right? So you know that this is a brutal yeah. reality. Um, so so yeah. when one applies to a tenure track job, right. maybe we
0: should explain tenure first. right? right. Um, so different than adjuncting and what we just talked about or like lectureships or right. things like this. Um much more long-term there's rounds and it's yeah. a
1: more intense process overall so, right? so tenure is the inability of a university to easily fire you and it's particularly set up to make sure that professors have the ability to be brave to speak against the man to be politically opinionated um Do you
0: know where this like how old tenure I don't I like, you know, I, want I to know more about because this. It's such a weird, like no and other- These Wikipedia tenure. No other, us. does any other job field have this type of security?
1: You know? Maybe being a priest? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, no, it's true because think about it. If you, huh, you enter an into the academy or you enter into the priesthood and you are indoctrinated, then even if you commit some really awful- things oh, wow. as we know in the catholic churches happen you it's hard to fire somebody you put them out in the well, in the monastery or something but
0: people even like i've heard my dad talk about like in the business world it's hard to fire someone you know true. just in a business world you have it's to have true. all these like strikes against you that go through hr yeah. and you have to have warnings you can't just like fire people willy-nilly not anymore no. not anymore so i'm thinking this has to must date back when you could fire people very easily
1: um but sorry for revealing our ignorance and please you can, you can, I'm sure somebody is studying this would be like you silly people. And then we can go to town in the comments. Um, But to get tenured is a wonderful thing. So you, you want to be applying for those tenure track jobs, knowing that if you're tenured at a university, the only way you can be fired is if they dissolve your entire department which i have seen happen. yeah. <laughs> so if they decide at usc that they don't need a german department anymore mm-hmm. uh, then it's it's gone. you you no. you could lose your job. generally at places like that however they move the yeah, tenured they... people into other places like they'll put somebody in history or put somebody anthro, yeah. yeah anthro might well like Some related, anthro could shut down and they put you field. in history for which is example. what happened
0: i remember at, when i was at temple. yeah. they were trying to dissolve women's studies
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh african-american studies all these studies and just coalesce them all just into anthro oh wow and there was like straight, you know people were did they do
1: it did they succeed? so they
0: they collapsed women's studies into anthro oh, my i goodness. think African, african-american studies survived because huh. people were like in a uproar and, yeah you know rightfully so upset um but they were trying to you know cut some in their mind you know yeah some extra
1: I mean, I'm not here to tell you that every department should be as it is. And here's an example at UCLA, we and and the faculty voted on this, Mm -hmm. but the faculty decided that there shouldn't be a Scandinavian department with two people in it and a German department with five people in it and french department with nine people in it and they put all of those together into a european languages and cultures department that i think is more powerful more nimble yeah. um gives their professors more powerful it's less decentralized mm-hmm. and um so that that's a useful thing in some yeah. ways but it's like yeah. when you
0: have a whole like women's studies had a full department african american studies has a full department that's of amazing. professors of you yeah. know, staff and all this stuff that they were just trying to
1: and as we know, these Cut things people. are political. Mm-hmm. These things are political. So sometimes people perceive certain fields of study as highly problematic and, and they can receive the acts by a right. provost or chancellor. Well,
0: when I was at Temple II, none of the professors wanted to be chair of the anthro department. So they hired like a business person to oh, do it. Oh my goodness. So they brought someone in. It was, like, it was just a mess.
1: Yeah, I've heard um, of situations where so. the, the faculty cannot govern themselves and they bring in outside yep. faculty to deal with it. But Yeah so what was your pension so, question tenure track. Time? Yeah, so ten- when you're yeah. tenure
0: track that means yes. you don't have tenure yet right. but you're in a job that allows you to apply for it at some point in the future and this is important
1: because there are certain universities out there and um, we all in the academy know who they are most of them are ivy league which will bring somebody in mm-hmm. as assistant professor and then rarely tenure those people which have been in the news yeah, and they're getting yeah. a lot of criticism for it, these Ivy League institutions that bring in people to work for six years and then don't give them tenure. Um, even after jumping through all of the hoops, publishing the two books, doing all of the things and still not getting. tenure. And when you're tenure. denied tenure, you're
0: You're done. You leave That's the university. The end of your job. That's it. It's the end you of your don't job. get
1: tenure, you're... It's a really clever way of keeping a hierarchical upper class that is consistent of tenured people, many of whom you brought in from the outside, mm-hmm. and then keeping an underclass of constantly rotating and disempowered professors who cannot band together, who are so busy running on the wheel to get the cheese that they need to get to get the tenure that they're not going to yeah. get anyway, that it, um, it, people are loath to change the system. But if mm-hmm. you get an assistant professorship at some of these ivies, I've heard people say, oh, good luck in your six-year postdoc, mm-hmm. because they know that it's it's very unlikely to get tenure at some of these institutions. Well, and like
0: major in the news, it's, all, you know, Black people ha- yeah. not getting the yeah. boards, not voting to give them tenure. Well, their department is, voted in know. favor,
1: and then it went mm-hmm. all the way up to the the provost or chancellor, and so, they decide, nope, no tenure for you. And um, things can be very, very political I as think, far as tenure yeah, is remember.
0: I can yeah. think of a couple of cases which we can throw in the show notes yeah. for. Yeah, yeah people um to look into but yeah it's highly
1: political in a lot
0: of cases and
1: so so you think oh my god I got this tenure track job and getting the tenure track job is and we can we'll talk about this we should talk about this it is an ordeal but say you get that tenure track job and then then you've got to finish sometimes two books maybe Mm -hmm. just one you have to have a whole shit ton of peer-reviewed articles you have to have service you have to have a significant teaching record you have to put all of this package together and and you might not, there might be life experiences that, or health experiences that, that get in the way of yeah. you finishing things on time. Some people have mental health crises. Some people have to get divorced before they have tenure. Um, luckily my it's divorce a came inf- after. <laughs> very
0: inflexible, right? Yes. About like, I mean, this is your time to review. We don't care what you have to They've go They've now when. allowed
1: people to start stopping the clock. Like if you have a oh, baby, okay. you get to stop your tenure clock um, for a year there's all kinds so, of um because I did have the baby before tenure yeah and I but I didn't stop my clock um but the, the, but, but anyways, it's also but then yeah. when you go up
0: for tenure review that's the time where if for some reason you're not liked or yeah. you're too outspoken about something yeah. that's their chance to be like yeah. well we don't care if you met all the requirements we're gonna now vote against you and yeah all right and then
1: that's it and that's but, it and you you have some recourse but the way I've seen it is that there is more transparency and more systematic understanding of how tenure works at public and public facing institutions, rather than private institutions where decisions can be made, and and some public institutions behave like private institutions, Mm -hmm. and are very hierarchical in how decisions are made. but it's at those, let me just say, it's at those institutions that have real faculty governors that have an actual academic yeah. senate that makes the decisions for their institution. That is where tenure is more transparent. And it's, I'm not saying it's easier to get, but it's something, it's a system in which it's harder to be abused. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and you can check, you know, on, on these statistics. And where do you, each, where does one look? I don't know. I just know for people, friends of mine who are in tenure track jobs, They have, you know, percentage of people who've gotten tenure. Oh yes, so you can see like I see what what your likelihood is. uh, Yeah, you know what I mean. I, Um, you know what I
1: compare it to in my mind, mm -hmm. and we'll find we'll put this in the show notes, like what the percentages of tenure are different or at different institutions. But it reminds me of when you're you're pregnant and you're choosing a hospital and you want to look at the percentage of C-sections that have been performed at a particular oh hospital. God. So when I saw that Cedar sinai was like 45% C-section when I was going through this, I'm like, no way am I going to go to that hospital so high almost half of the births at that time were being performed through c-sections which is ridiculous it means the least little problem, they're intervening too much medically the least little problem then they go in and they carve out the baby and so i went to a ucla hospital which had a much lower rate Mm -hmm. and then i had a midwife which gave me an even lower rate Mm -hmm. um so that even though i was the first natural breach in 16 years at ucla i still had the um the regular yeah. non-c-section birth. But anyway, um, so you want to, you know, but, but here's the thing you can, I can choose a hospital if I have good insurance, but if you don't have insurance, good insurance, yeah. you don't get to choose yeah. shit. Yep. And if you've managed to get a tenure track job and it's not exactly the job that you want, but it's the only one you've been offered, then you kind of, you you're like, Oh, well, it. I guess I have to take it. And mm-hmm. this is the way it has to be. Yep. Um, yeah, okay. well, we're dumping the gun. We should okay. start with. Oh, getting okay. the tenure track job. First. Yes. Okay. So you're
0: applying for jobs. Well, let's pretend there's lots of jobs. You're applying, applying, applying. Usually in those applications, it's, you know, a statement
1: of purpose, your mm-hmm. teaching portfolio, letters of rec. Your statement of purpose is generally in your own cover letter. Yeah. So your cover letter for some jobs needs to be two pages. My cover letter for UCLA was three full yeah. pages. Um, you want to put all of the, if that's all they're asking for is a cover letter and they don't have a separate teaching statement, you got to put all of that into the one letter. And I did. And so it was a three page letter, but I talked about my research and my book, Mm -hmm. um, all the articles I had written. I talked about my service, what I had done at Stanford, Mm -hmm. what I had done at the Getty. Um, and I talked about my teaching, what courses I had developed and, that I was an amazing teacher capable Mm -hmm. of communicating in this way or that way, whatever. And And future research endeavors. Yes. I I want, you want to set yourself up as a tenurable candidate in that letter. So you say, this is the research that I've done. This is what I've published. This is my five-year plan and what Mm -hmm. I will publish next. And this is to give everyone who's reading this letter, an idea of how tenurable you are. Um, Yes. So you do
0: all that. So yeah. let's pretend UCLA is hiring a new Egyptologist. Yes. You have a
1: bunch of applications. Yeah. People do send you all this information. Then what happens? So the, and, and the information they send you will be like a cover letter, maybe a teaching statement. We ask for a diversity statement mm-hmm. in well, addition.
0: I, a lot of, I think, universities yeah. are doing that. Now. And,
1: um, and letters of rec. So yeah. your letters are like, then you'll ask Do you read for... people's dissertations? Yes, Yeah. You, so if you get to a medium list stage where you've got like 10 people listed. Okay. So you narrow the You list narrow down it first. down. So let's say for an Egyptology job, you're not gonna get too many applications, but let's say you get like a hundred. Yeah. Um, you first take out the people who have- Missing n- something. Who are missing something or are too advanced. Hmm. So if it's a, the job is generally posted in a particular category. Sometimes you have an open rank job But most of the time, you know, it's cheaper to hire at a junior level, to hire assistant professor rather than to hire open rank, which is assistant associate with tenure or full. And so if somebody has advanced out of that ranking, then you really can't consider them because it's not an open rank search. So you take all those people with two or three books who just want to leave their institution or looking to, you know, maybe leverage things or something like that. And those people go and the people who aren't ready go. But in the United States, not ready is a little different so you could have you could just be finishing your phd mm-hmm. and be out there on the market with two articles and if it's a junior level search you could easily be hired it's completely possible mm-hmm. so you can be hired right out of the gate with the understanding that you have the potentiality to produce all oh. kinds of work if you fit like if you fit exactly like what they need and something. if your dissertation kicks ass yeah.
0: then you've got it mm-hmm. So we're on short list. Oh, right. We've narrowed it down right. um, to maybe 20, 25 people. Yeah. Then what happens?
1: Then generally in a non-COVID world, yeah. you interview people at conferences. And if you're- At conferences, okay. Mostly at conferences. Okay. And if you're in, it can be Zoom. And we were doing Zoom before, but now, you know, now that we're post-COVID, mm-hmm. oh my goodness. Handed <laughs> handed tequila it's like as we talk about the most stressful parts of the academic world the tequila and the lime oh my god what is that it's salt salt yeah. oh you scared me what do I do with it I just have to can Pick I do it. that yeah. I do that
0: I'm okay.
1: just gonna oh, you do it together okay oh, or you can do okay it with that. okay ready Bye. oh Good. You, I feel that. It
0: was nice. My tummy's all warm. I know. What tequila I, is that? I usually don't like tequila. Yes.
1: That was really good. It was very nice. <clears throat> <clears throat> anyway. Well, this is really stressful. So, you know, having how many shortlists was I on? I'm trying to think. We're
0: on the 20 person interviewing at conferences.
1: Oh, right. So conference and conference um interviews are horrible because they could be like, in a side lounge, they could be in a hotel room. Like, oh, you're giving a paper at a conference and then you also have a job interview. And people come to see your paper and then they kind of talk to you after. Sometimes it can be an informal kind of thing. They're all sent. And and the committee sends people out to different papers. They're like, I'll get the Smith paper, you get the Galzinski Mm. paper or whatever. And Mm -hmm. then they they check out different people, which is why when you're on the market, you want to be presenting at conferences as much as possible. Um, So then- if you get past the medium list and you get to the short list, and this is why it takes a year to get a job, a tenure track job in the academy, and it's insane. And yeah, you, one has to plan out their life and not depend on these things. It's it's awful. It's awful. It's a horrible system. So this is why I want to talk about so horrible search system searches too. Because oh, we'll it's there. such a it's awful. Yeah. So then, say there you got, got four candidates, and in Europe they do it all in one day which is really crazy. And they all meet each other. And then you like go to the pub after I have done this, but here it's a little nicer, kind of. And it's done fast. And you you know, whereas, no, here Here, it's like months of like months. And they come, each person gets two days and they have their interview with the committee. They give their job talk. This is the short list of four people. They do their job talk where they present for 45, 50 minutes, Mm -hmm. sometimes an hour. And then there's questions after that. And it's like a hyper grilling sort of thing. and this thing. is when us as graduate students grad can students come, should come
0: and ask listen, questions. Yep. and then you guys ask us for our opinions yep. on you know who we like yep. and,
1: um, and and then you know you have lunches with them mm-hmm. and lots of schmoozing. Um, lots of schmoozing. Um, you have to decide what to wear if you're the candidate. Mm-hmm. Do you go for the black pantsuit? Do you wear something a little more interesting? Yep. What do you do with your hair? How much makeup? This is the only things we- women i think if you're a man who's so much easier binary and wears earrings but then it's you know it can be interesting but um it can be easier to be a man in these situations to be but anyway
0: well i think more that you don't get judged for what you wear
1: yeah no woman i I was judged oh so here's my worst too
0: casual too sexy so i was a
1: short list earrings are too big at a local university in los angeles that will remain unnamed but you can try to figure it out (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, they they go by three letters. I I know exactly, and so, <laughs> and it's and I same I, one I wore a that black. I was
0: going to adjunct that.
1: That what? Is it the same one I was going to adjunct? At? I don't think so. There's multiple different universe, three letters. Different three letters. More are prestigious than oh, the three okay, letters okay. that you were going to yeah. adjunct that. And and I wore a black pantsuit and mm-hmm. a red. It had it was sleeveless like a sweater, like an Ann Taylor sweater mm-hmm. that went up to here and then to here. Yeah. And, um, and I did my interview when it was red. And, and I remember <laughs> I took off my jacket to teach the class. Arms. Right. And, and um, you have arms. I have arms, yeah. but, but apparently when I was pointing to things, the it may have lifted and you may have seen some skin, but what got back to me through my advisor at Johns Hopkins was that I had done the whole interview wearing a midriff bearing shirt, which is now all the rage. And that I was showing my belly the entire time. And um, my advisor was horrified. And she's like, they're saying that you exposed your belly the entire interview. And, and I'm like, oh my God, Betsy, what do you think that I would ever do that? Yeah. Who would ever do that in an yeah. interview situation? Knowing that least, this is yeah. the time that you're going to just show all your hotness off. And I was hot then. But, um, but so the... It was just open misogyny Mm -hmm. and an open ax job so that they didn't have to hire me Mm -hmm. and they could take somebody else who ended up not getting tenure, but, um, that poor woman. Um, but it's, you know, we, once you go through this, it's almost like the defense is nothing. If you make it past the hazing and the trauma of the defense, then you get to go through the hazing and the trauma of the shortlist in which you have a 25% chance to get Mm -hmm. a particular job. And having done that, I did like three or four short lists until finally I was in the short list for UCLA. And By the time I got to UCLA, I was just like, you know what, you know, by that point, it's not in your control Mm -hmm. that the politics are there that you can't even see, that you have no idea how things are going to go. So you cannot care. And you just go in and you're like, here's my power. Here is my ability yeah, up to you guys and uh, peace out. And that's it. From like friends I know who have gone through it. Mm -hmm. It's like, I've had friends
0: who are like, I'm doing this for a year. Year. Mm-hmm. If I don't get anything, like I'm out. I'm done. I wouldn't advise and, that. I would yeah. advise that you, which is th- what I told my friend. I was like, "Oh, I talked to Kara about to it. Peace out." And I was like, "Give it some time." But what she you ended up need, getting one, so what you okay. need
1: to do is put yourself into a place of safety so that you're not a bubbling bowl of jelly at the interview. Because if you need this position so much. Yeah. You won't be able to say the right thing. You'll be constantly worried about how, whether you're presentable to this person or that person, you'll be second guessing yourself. You won't be bringing your own power and your own ability. Mm -hmm. But if you, this is why I always tell my students, don't adjunct, find a career path B. Get, if you can't get a tenure track position right out of the gate, fine, get a, High quality administrative position mm-hmm. at a university or an NGO or something that's grant writing, something, something that's tangentially related, th- where yeah. you have benefits and you are safe. Mm-hmm. Because if you are applying for one of these university positions, you're on a short list, but you're also in a safe place. Yeah. Then you you don't need them, and they don't need you to, to need them. I feel and feel like you, you that probably show better in, too. It's you less, do.
0: You're less. Desperately can be smelled fear can be
1: smelled and sussed out it doesn't make you an attractive candidate so go in with all of the positivity that Mm -hmm. you've already got something because you need to create a situation which you do already have but also
0: like i think it's important to remember too that you want the job to be good for you yeah that you want it to you and the job and the community to fit well together and it's nice too to have the ability to say like you know you even if you say you get offered the job to say like, no, like this is not a good fit for me. I have another option or.
1: It's a rare thing. Jordan. I know,
0: but it, <laughs> it's yes, rare. nowadays it's rare. Which but, is,
1: you know, it's nice. Which is part of the other, it, which is the game, right? That because this is such a scarce commodity, people will do almost anything to get yeah. this commodity. And that, that sets up all kinds of problems um, in terms of how much of one's life one is willing to give to this profession yeah. and um, I mean,
0: yeah, family and
1: exactly. kids
0: and not having around. kids, even though you
1: wanted them yeah. not living with your partner because you can't, they have a job someplace else yep. and you need to be in this place. Well, that's what I always think about yeah. for Jeff and I, it's like two academics yeah. in, the, in the house.
0: It's like yeah. at some point you'll probably be separated.
1: Yeah, and I wouldn't something. do it for longer than a couple of years. There's no point. And then you figure out where your priorities yeah. are and and the the way that i wouldn't say that you stop applying for things after a year i would say that you only apply for things that work with your life after mm-hmm. a certain amount of time so when i applied to ucla i had given up applying for all of those jobs in other places mm-hmm. i was only applying in this metropolitan LA, area yeah. i knew i needed and wanted to be here mm-hmm. luckily i'm in a place in which there were there are jobs, Options. there are things. So, and I was working at the Getty at that time and I had a full-time position at the Getty. So if I hadn't gotten UCLA, yeah. it wouldn't have been the end of the world. Mm-hmm. I would still have that position at the Getty. Yeah. But so, you know, I was coming in from a place of power, but I did not get that tenure track opportunity in a place that fit me for seven years mm-hmm. after I got the PhD. That is not uncommon mm-hmm. in this world. And it's, um, Now, all of these things that I'm saying, I I am hoping, and I'm crossing everything right now, that we are hitting the rock bottom in what our university higher education system is affording to its PhDs. But I don't know that that's the case. There is extraordinary anti intellectualism against the humanities in general because of the thought and criticism that we bring to the political world around us. And there is a great part of the population that would love to just sweep away the humanities with, with one flick of the wrist and just be done with it. Yeah. So maybe we haven't hit rock bottom yet, but there's um, if, if you keep going down, we can't keep going down forever. There is going to come a par- point where the boomers start to retire, where the universities start to realize that adjuncting isn't getting them what they need and might actually be hurting them in their Mm -hmm. U.S. News and World Report or whatever, or getting tuition money or or something. Um, There may be a way up. What we're discussing right now is bad. It's bad. And that's why, but I'm not going to tell you it's not. I'm not going to tell any of the students who are studying with me that it's not, because you guys must know that you're going to have to fuck over this academy at some point to protect yourself and build your own power. And then maybe if they if they offer you something, you might deign to go back to mm-hmm. it, but you get, you take from it when it gives. If they're not giving, you need to walk away. Yeah. You need to walk away. Yeah. Ugh, you, get so...
0: you need to know the point to call it. <laughs> yeah. It's you not do. worth it. Yeah. To like put yourself through, yeah. like not get paid for your work and to do all that kind of stuff. Nothing There's... is that
1: precious. No. Nothing. No. It's a job. And if you haven't been taught to do anything else, then you better learn something now. Mm-hmm. So if. You're... But I think at UCLA, we always have. I'll have our side gigs well because what do you, you know you can do a side <laughs> gig where you're being digital humanities yeah. you can do a side gig so that's options. involving pedagogy you can do a side gig that involves counseling that's what eric did right so you can do all kinds of side gigs so then you're you're really marketable and yeah. in other things beyond strict academia If you don't have that and you're in a phd program now you might want to look, into, look into that yeah. at your university what do they have they have so many training programs. certificate programs even like writing like we have a yeah. writing certificate and it's yeah.
0: and they're actually having a job fair where they're you see like shanghai is looking oh, to hire God. a bunch of people like post uh graduates yeah um looking to hire a bunch of phds and you know you do the writing certificate we all yeah. know how to write yeah as as
1: PhDs, so it's a good option and you spend one or two or three years in shanghai yeah, and, and then, then see you what,
0: see what yeah. you know goes from there but
1: the, the, I mean, the other thing that's haunting about this question, or all of these questions, is movement. You have to be willing to pick up and move and go here for two years and there for three years. Yeah. It's kind of like being a little military brat yeah. for a while. Mm-hmm. Like um, going to bases. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, a very monk like. We keep going back to this priestly monkish existence. Yeah. But well, growing... that's why it's
0: always hard when you are dating or in a mm-hmm. relationship with someone who's also in academia. Yes. Yeah. Like you both have to.
1: And I've Maybe seen people say, I'm not going to apply for things that, you know, I'm settled with this partner. I'm staying with this partner mm-hmm. and I want this life and I'm not going to apply for anything outside of this metropolitan area. I could be an asshole and say, as my student, you should mm-hmm. be hungry and willing to do this or that. I'm not doing that because we all need to build our power and our safety where we can. That And
0: everyone has different priorities in life, if,
1: you know? So if that, if you tell me that, and I know that I'm like, okay, I got it. Like, we have many recent PhDs are like, this is where I'm going to be. This yeah, is where I want to be. I'm not going to, and, and that's not just uproot and that's kids
0: and do that every no. couple of years. That's no. a lot for them. Or so. it would
1: demand that people are separate from their families yeah. for years at a time. That's mm-hmm. no good. That's has no to be great. their
0: choice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, we talked about job searches. Yeah. So, how are job searches from your perspective of hiring and a failed job? Job search. Job searches. I didn't know how expensive they were.
1: Yeah.
0: Just like how and much the money has to pay. So like spent our summer on funding on a job search, and then if it's if it doesn't come to fruition, I mean so with all like, of
1: the dinners and the lunches, and, and you fly the plane people out, tickets. and you put yeah. people up, the and then hotel. you offer them
0: a job, and say maybe they have some other stipulations that mm-hmm. they want of spousal hire.
1: Spousal hires well, we can talk rarely about. happen. A spousal hire is when- <laughs> Yeah, that's a thing of the past, right? <laughs> it's not necessarily, but it is largely. Yeah. Um, not necessarily, but if you're sought after and they want you and you say, oh, well, my partner happens to be an academic in X, Y, or Z, mm-hmm. it is possible for a chancellor or a provost to be like, okay, and we will hire that partner um, and to put them into more... this other department. And, but, you know, at places with academic senates like UCLA, I see spousal hires go south pretty quickly because then that person gives a job talk in the other department and then that other department is like if I if we hire this person you're not going to give us a job in the area mm-hmm. that we want so they often say no so
0: okay so what you just said you don't give us a job so when departments want to hire to fill a vacancy that they see they in need to go to
1: their dean in their division who then goes to the okay. provost above them who and they deal they like allot these things yes. to different departments. Okay. And depending on the division that you're in, you know, in my division in the humanities, you know, classics might get a search in a year and ancient mm-hmm. East might get it or, or yeah, an like L might get it. You, you all get like turns and yeah. people notice if a department has gotten a whole bunch of searches in a short period of mm-hmm. time, there will be an outcry amongst the faculty. And they'd be like, no, you can't have all of these searches yeah. and there will be pushback against something like that. So it has to be evenly distributed. Obviously larger departments are going to get more searches than smaller Mm -hmm. departments. So English and history might get larger, more searches than um, some some other smaller department.
0: Would you get a search more quickly if you had someone like a major gap needs to be filled?
1: You would think so, but that's not always the case. case. And unfortunately, if a major gap needs to be filled and it can't be filled immediately, at UCLA, you might bring in a lecture at another place, you might bring in some adjuncts and fill that gap that way. And of course, this is the way that since I started when it was like 60% tenure track faculty, tenured faculty, going down to 20% now, it's that it's every time somebody retires, mm-hmm. the, the powers that be, whoever they are, decide we don't have the money for this. We're not going to fill oh, we okay. We're going to hire an adjunct. We're not going to fill that position, and we're going to use this money for this other thing instead. No. And so the numbers just keep going lower. Especially and then, if
0: if you have a failed job
1: search, failed like, job searches, I have seen that happen. But then you don't get it's another awful. one, right? You lose your card. Not necessarily. If the money that's gone into that job search comes from the department, the department couldn't get their shit together. Uh It is possible that the Dean will give them that FTE again in the next year. You might then as the chair of that department decide to switch up your committee, because if you have a committee that can't make a decision, you don't want that again. You may not want that again. But if you're in a small department where that's going to be your committee, no matter what, you just have to figure out how to deal with it again. Okay. Um, but failed job searches do happen, and they almost always speak to divisions, disagreements within a department about what it is they even want. Mm-hmm. And you have two people that want this kind of person and two people that want a person that does that, and they cannot agree, and the job search fails. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's often not enough planning before okay. or, or transparency beforehand about where people actually <laughs> fall in a, in a job search situation. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, since we touched on it, department politics.
1: Yes. <laughs> since
0: we're since we're there with yeah. job searches. Yeah. So when you get hired into a department as yeah. tenure track, um, yeah. you not only have to teach. Yeah. It's not just your sole responsibility, is teaching and doing your own research and all this kind of stuff, but you also have to, you know, be engaged in you serve kind of community service in a way um you have to go to departmental, departmental meetings. Service. yeah um, make sure you go to
1: your department all these types of
0: things it's also part of the you, you the want shit. to serve
1: on committees yep. um, assistant professors are often shielded from more onerous service but it wouldn't be a bad thing for an assistant professor to volunteer for certain mm-hmm. committees uh, it could be a bad thing like if you're in a in a faculty meeting And there's some committee and the chair is like, so I'm going to need somebody to serve on this. And the assistant professor is like, oh, oh, me, me, me. (laughs) Depends on what it is. It might not necessarily come off well. Mm -hmm. Um, I would advise the junior faculty to just have side conversations all the time and continue to have good political exchanges with your fellow faculty members so that they know that you're, yeah, that you're interested in doing something like this. Yeah. And you want to be a team player, you know, somebody who's helping to teach, who's helping to make decisions rather than somebody who's just doing their own stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then what are your, when you get to be chair? (laughs) Get to be chair. And not (laughs) everyone gets to be chair. So wait, we didn't talk
0: about like applying for tenure, the process of like getting tenure. Well,
1: that's its own thing. So Um, when you like,
0: you've been there for a couple of years. Yeah. You usually have to write a book or a series of articles um, and you apply.
1: I mean, it depends. Tenure at different institutions. If you're at a teaching institution, then, well, like let's take some institutions with three letters in the city (laughs) of Los Angeles. So if you're at LMU, Loyola Marymount University in Playa Vista, you don't need a book. You could have a set of articles and service and teaching and then you're fine. And it's a teaching heavy institution and they don't require those same bar. If you're at USC, more research heavy. It is much more research heavy and it will depend on the department that you're in, in the humanities, whether or not you need a book In the sciences, you're not going to need a book. You're going to need lab work and your, and your big articles and yeah. things like that. But you know, how many, you you're a primary author on that kind of thing, it's in the sciences, but in the humanities, you need your monographs mm-hmm. and most departments there, I think still want two rather than at UCLA, where most of the time one is enough, but two can sometimes, you know, one in a manuscript is yeah. what, what we like to go with. Um. So, yeah. Um. But the, what was so the question? You, oh, oh, right. So, what what are the requirements for yeah. tenure? They How do you like apply? From, so you get to a certain if you certain that also of time. That right? So some universities won't let you go up early. Okay. And you go up after six or seven years, and that's just their clock, and you cannot accelerate, and that's it. You have to be okay. patient, and that's it. Most of those are teaching institutions because mm-hmm. they don't want to give you the, the bump and pay till they have to give you the bump and pay. Other institutions, particularly our one research one, the highest level of institutions, tell you you can go up for tenure whenever you have it because they want to keep you. they want to lock you mm-hmm. in. They're in a much more competitive space in terms of keeping their professors happy because they might jump ship and go someplace else they might get poached so if you have what you need for tenure if you're one or two books or your book and a manuscript and all of your your peer-reviewed articles and your service and your teaching and your diversity you have that package then you sit down with your chair and you say i have all of these things and what do you think my plan should be Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: you come up with a a plan well let's do your fourth year review in this year like we we can even skip around the fourth year review to not your fourth year to something that's earlier than okay. your fourth year. So if you come in more advanced and you have what you need for that kind of fourth year review, we'll bump it up to your second okay. year, and then we'll go up. We'll put you up for tenure the year after that or two years after mm-hmm. that. So it's good to have a, a plan with your mentor and chair okay. about how you're gonna you're gonna run it.
0: Yes. Yeah, Susan so then you apply, and then there's a review board, and, and most can...
1: universities have like panels where yeah. you, as the assistant professor, go in. And, and you have a panel of different, like, well, you have lunch and they'll give you Mm -hmm. like the squab and you have have your little thing. You're like trying to fight the squab as everyone's asking questions about, Uh well, my department or this or that. And, and, and they try to tell you what the system is, is like and what to prepare Mm -hmm. for. Some places are much more transparent. Some places are much more opaque and like to keep it opaque and you'll know (laughs) where you've landed um, by what you hear other people say. And
0: so the department will also do like a review of you, but then go. Goes... Yes.
1: And your tenure review. So there's your, com- you have an ad hoc committee, a committee that's formed just to discuss and write a report on your tenure case. And are they part of your department? They are, they are part of your department. They're okay. part of your department. And then they present that to the department. And the department, whether it's eight people or 20 people or 50 people, then discuss your tenure case. And they should have read part of your book. They should have looked at your teaching and your student evaluations. They Mm -hmm. should have looked at your, your dossier and your package. And then they discuss whether or not they feel that you have what you need. And then you might have discussions of collegiality, whether or not that person is somebody people like to work with?
0: Pizza,
1: um, no tenure cannot be given because there's a lack of collegiality. But if something somebody's on the bubble and they don't necessarily have what they need, then whether or not people like you, i.e., collegiality, can be a deal breaker yeah. for whether or not you get tenure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, but it's it's a it's a process, and so getting through and getting that tenure. The way I like to say it is that. And as chair, the way that I like to see it for my junior faculty is no one should be going up for tenure uh, without knowing it's going to be a slam dunk. Mm -hmm. I want every tenure case to be a slam dunk. You need to have all the boxes checked. You need to know you have what you need. And we shouldn't be worried about it. If you're worried about it at a transparent place like UCLA where you know what you need, then you're doing something wrong. And that should
0: be taken care of before.
1: Yeah. And the other thing that UCLA has that is nice is we have, we have a, a committee after the fact. Mm-hmm. So that even if, if, say you're in a really toxic department and they're saying bad things about you or they're, they're not dealing with your case in a forthright manner, you then have this committee that's university wide, mm. that's a much larger committee that will take your grievances that's and look at the situation oh. fairly. And I have seen many votes by a department overturned by that larger UCLA committee. Cool. Now that's great at UCLA, but at other less opaque universities, the provost or the chancellor can be like, oh yeah, the department voted in favor, but we don't like her, mm-hmm. you know, and no tenure for you. And it, that same committee can be abused. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the university culture that you're a part of. It's
0: okay. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so other opportunities, once you're in the department, yeah, you can be chair.
1: You could be chair.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you could. Um, and so I guess- obviously it comes with a lot of responsibilities yeah. and things to do yeah but what are the advent you know advantages of being chair
1: um well you know My or
0: what have you enjoyed I guess maybe about being chair as yeah. as
1: chair of the department um and I became chair when I was an associate professor so I had received tenure mm-hmm. had been tenured for like I don't know three four years mm-hmm. maybe less before I ended up becoming chair of the department and before that I'd served as graduate and undergraduate advisor. Um, is that the typical rotation that you do? Like undergraduate, then graduate advisor, and then it can be. Um, I can imagine that working well that you start out as being grad and undergrad advisor, and the students come to you, mm-hmm. and you you figure those systems out, serve on some admissions committees and other things, and then you're ready to move on to the next step of being Did you want chair. To be chair? Oh, I still don't know the answer to that question, <laughs> Jordan. I mean, you... Well, you know, hindsight, you can always... Uh... Um, I can do admin work. Yeah. I can delegate. I can make decisions quickly. Um, I don't try to fight the system mm-hmm. and take it apart in an image that I think it needs to fit.
2: Yeah.
1: I am pragmatic. And so, and, I, and I'm not competitive with other people and I'm not trying to pull all the resources to me. And so in that way, I think I'm a good chair mm-hmm. because being a chair is allocating the resources of a department amongst your faculty and amongst mm-hmm. your graduate students to make sure that you have an application system for summer funding, yeah. TA ships, um, making sure that the right TA ships go to the right people, um, making sure that you're listening to your students, you're listening to your faculty. And it's, it's just an allocation of those scarce resources. Um, and I think it's, um, it, let, let me put it this way. Everyone has to do service. Yeah. I don't care what university you're at. So if you have a tenure track position, you will end up doing service. And the, there are all kinds of ways to do service. You can do service where you're serving in the academic Senate mm-hmm. as starting as secretary and then a vice president. And then you're president of the entire academic Senate. Go you, you know? Or you could be on, once I served on the, um, academic personnel, um, or no, what was it? Whatever you, there are lots of committees that one can serve on. You could serve on grad council, you could do all kinds of things and you could go really high in the academic Senate. And I have found that when I like to give service, I like to do so in my own home space, Mm -hmm. in my own, you can see the ramifications of it. Yeah. I also just like to keep my home clean. I like to keep my home nice. I like to keep my family happy. And I, and it's, and I get to learn all the gossip within <laughs> my space. So if you're that kind of person, it's like, oh, why did that happen? And what uh-huh. happened there? And who's it? The... If you're chair, you'll get to know it anyway. If you're the kind of person that wants to know the Probably gossip. more than you want to know. Mm, yeah. Oh, <laughs> defi- definitely. That is true because all the fires come to you, right? Uh-huh. But if you're the kind of person that wants to know what's happening in the hierarchy above mm-hmm. and isn't as interested in your home space, and there are many people like this, I would say in some ways more then you would want to go beyond being mm-hmm. chair because then- a dean
0: or something. Is, yeah.
1: go, go to those higher positions because then you get to hang out with the dean. And mm-hmm. hang, I mean, I, I know the dean, but there are place, there are other positions where you have much closer yeah. connection on what with you wanna... creating strategy and building things and applying for grants and really working with the dean in a much closer capacity mm-hmm. than I do. Yeah. So, but,
0: uh, but yes. Depends on your career. Goals and
1: I mean, I don't think you can plan this stuff. You know, I wouldn't try to over curate, there's no way to know. You end up in a position that circumstances allowed, and then the only reason I became chair so early is because everyone in my department was a director of a center and doing something really important, and so there was no one else there to be chair. And the person who had been chair had served 16 years. Yeah. So, and was like, pain. done, I can't do it anymore. And it was only fair that somebody else step in and mm-hmm. take over that role. And I was the only person I in it that really was able to do it that didn't have a dig or didn't have this other responsibility. And so it, it made sense for me to do it. Um, was it the right time? Did I want it? Do I want it still? I don't know. Would my life be a hell of a lot easier without being chair? Yes, um, but in some ways, it's it's made me have to publish in a certain way on a certain schedule. Mm-hmm. So what we talked about last time about like
0: keeping busy and being so busy that when you have any moment to do something, you really are like, a, what should I be doing right now? Take advantage of that time. Yeah. So last done. night was Saturday
1: night. I had my hot Saturday night, and um, and I finished chapter one of the. I finished oh. that draft of the AUC thing, and I sent it to Amber, and I'm like, footnote the Yay. shit out of this, and so that. That happened and now I'm gonna and chapter two is a fucking mess. So I'm gonna get in there. Um notice how I all the bad words come out when I start talking about writing. Well, wow. But that's anyway. another podcast.
0: Episode. Yes, it
1: is. It is. <laughs> but so we've gone from the very lowest we from to the very well, no, because I don't I don't want to go higher than chair. I think that's I mean it's a good place to stop. I don't there are lots of people that have higher administrative mm-hmm. interests, and I don't think this is something that interests me.
0: Yeah, depends on your. Personal.
1: But we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. There's always possibilities out there. Um, but if you have higher interests, you generally in the academic world can't profess it openly, particularly if you're mm-hmm. a woman, because mm-hmm. open ambition is not attractive. So you have to say, oh no, Mm-mm.
0: I just did it because I, I don't, had to. I don't want to do
1: this, but you yeah. just do it.
0: So. Yep. Any final thoughts on <sighs> demystifying? Academia. Um, Hopefully, we didn't scare anyone.
1: Well, we should have scared you. Um, I think <laughs> not we, too much. I think we did scare you because I think you can see that the system is broken mm-hmm. and breaking even more. And it's um, it's a system in which you actually actively must protect yourself yeah. from systemic harm and toxicity. And I'm not saying this because I'm. I'm saying this because I've lived it and because it's real, and I'm also not telling you you shouldn't go to it if you feel called because it can be be fucking amazing. So what you're able to do in an academic system and the kind of research you're able to do that I'm able to do, the kinds of contact and discussions we're able to have, and the, the passion that we can bring to our work and to our teaching is amazing. All of that being said, you've got to protect yourself about the toxicity that's out there. So it's kind of like, you know, you want to start dating and you're really interested in a certain kind of guy, but you have to make sure on the first date that you tell people where you're going yeah. and what can make sure it's a public place. <laughs> Cause he could be like an
0: ax murderer. It's exactly, or... it's yeah. Something you love can also be, can also hurt you very much because you so might true. give, you know, allow yourself to be more open to trauma or traumatic so
1: you, experiences because you love it so much. You've hit the nail on the head. Because that's what's been abused. It's people's passion and love for their subjects that has been used to toxically almost enslave them mm-hmm. to a particular capitalist way of getting as much work and service and labor out of you because you love it. Out of, you love it. Yeah. So, this you need to have some distance from that and go into it because you love it, but not let, let it, it completely destroy it, yeah. you.
0: Yeah. It's not the end all be all. No there's always other things
1: there are and there are and you other can ways always to do it on the side you, you can always do it on the side with another job but there's other ways of bringing this passionate interest mm-hmm. to your work yeah. through a different lens a different way yeah.
0: yeah the last bit of advice yeah that's good good so, good. yeah i think we'll end it here for the final part of demystifying academia uh, thank you all for listening hope you enjoyed where can
1: we follow? And yeah, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. Um, Kara Coney, just Google those things and you'll find me. And my Squarespace page is active and running and has information about the book. You can sign up for the newsletter there. Anything else? No, I think we're good. See you guys next time. Bye guys. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review and help raise our profile and let others know about it. Send your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. You can find the video version of the show on my YouTube page and full show notes will be posted in the podcast section of my website, karakuni.squarespace.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books, upcoming lectures, and you can subscribe to my newsletter. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. See you next time on Afterlives with Karakuni.